This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 81, October the 9th, 1984. Well, to begin with, I'd like to read a letter from one of you, from Jan Coster in Penticton, British Columbia. And I quote, As I listened to Easy Chair Tape Number 79, I was intrigued with Landon Y. Jones' assumption in great expectations in the baby boon generation. His conclusion that a low birth rate leads to a low crime rate reminds me of a joke our kids brought home from school. I thought you might appreciate it. A scientist was doing experiments with frogs. He took one frog and cut off one leg. Then he told it to jump. It did, and he wrote in his book, when you cut one leg off a frog, it can still jump. Then he cut off a second leg and told the frog to jump. It did, and he duly noted, when two legs are removed, a frog can still jump. He cut off a third leg and told it to jump. It complied. Again, he wrote, a frog with three legs removed can still jump. Finally, he cut off the fourth leg and commanded the poor frog to jump. When it did not jump, even after several moments of exhortation, he wrote in his book, When the four legs on a frog are removed, the frog becomes deaf. Unquote. <laughs> well, I think that fits in with a great many uh, experiments and conclusions that are current today. Then this item also delighted me from uh, Florida, this clipping. A gunman entered a Florida prison dormitory and robbed an inmate serving an armed robbery sentence of a stereo, radio, TV set, and $30 in cash. The whole inmate population is still in shock, said the superintendent of the Minimum Security Pompano Beach Community Correctional Center. If you're not safe in prison from armed robbery, where are you safe? The center, which provides a work release program to its 140 guests, has no bars, no barbed wire, and no armed guards. The suspect is a convicted robber and former inmate at the center who failed to return from work on the outside. He didn't return to stay, that is. Well, you may have seen uh, this item about Graham Greene when he was interviewed in advance of his 80th birthday next month to um, get his reactions, he uh, made the statement, I would rather end my days in the gulag in the Soviet Union than in California. I didn't appreciate that remark. But where uh, Green is coming from was apparent uh, by a statement that there was a certain sympathy which the present Pope John Paul II doesn't seem to recognize between the believing communist and the believing Catholic. Enough for Graham Greene. This item from the Daily News Digest for September 26, 1984. The National Academy of Science data shows about 27 million people died in Red China 
during the Great Leap Forward and the late 50s and early 60s. Then, if you don't get the Washington Times, just to read John Lofton's column or John Lofton on the Loose, another item that he writes from time to time, you're missing a lot of fun and sometimes some very interesting comments. For his journal of Friday, October the 5th, 1984, Lofton has a column, Weird Tango Turns into a Legal Tango. It's about a, a custody case. Two lesbians went through some kind of ceremony and divorced and then later uh, separated. And the lesbian father, in quotes, won the right to seek visits to a child who was conceived by her former lover through artificial insemination while the couple lived together. And the judge ruled that the father is entitled uh, to a hearing on her request for rights to visit a seven-year-old girl who bears her last name. Now, these uh, two were married, in quotes, in 1977, and later proclaimed their love, guess where, on the Phil Donahue TV show. They decided to have a father to prove their love. Soon after their marriage, the mother gave birth to a daughter. The father assisted in the conception by using a turkey baster fortified with semen donated by her brother. The daughter is named Sparkle Crystal and the woman's brother who donated his semen is listed on the birth certificate as the child's father. Moving right along, after the couple broke up in 1980, the child's mother applied to the County Family Services Division for welfare benefits. The division then asked the district attorney's office to file a complaint against the lesbian father in order to get child support reimbursements from her. Remember, the father is actually a woman. Well, we get all kinds of data on the legal argument and why the court decided as it did. But uh, at any rate, the conclusion that Lofton makes is this. One would hate to see this whole thing turned into a farce or a fiasco. Stay tuned. I shall keep you informed. Meanwhile, if this case proves nothing else, it proves that it is not only nice not to try, uh, to, uh, to, try to fool Mother Nature, but also any such attempt can result in a hell of a legal mess." Unquote. Well, when courts can waste their time on that sort of thing, you know why you have delays in the court calendars and trouble in getting justice sometimes. Now on to a couple of other things very hastily. Some time back this year in the Calcedon Report, I had an article on the fear of freedom, on the fact that men really do not want freedom. Well, I was interested in... Uh, what 
Thomas Garrig Masaryk, the founder of Czechoslovakia, wrote in his three-volume study, The Spirit of Russia. In volume three on page 41, this is his perspective on the same subject. I quote, There is, in fact, nothing more intolerable for man than freedom of choice. If he must truly decide between good and evil, he would rather kill himself than make the choice. Thus freedom of conscience turns out to be nothing but the worst kind of suffering. People are nothing so much as small and foolish children who will rebel and drive the teacher from the classroom. Yet presently they do recognize their folly and calm themselves once again. In the final analysis, after all, there is nothing sweeter than the innocence of childhood. Christ wanted to impart a liberal faith and freedom of conscience to mankind. Yet man does not have the strength to be free, which is shown by the fact that the powerful and mighty of this earth, perhaps a number in the tens of thousands, whereas the masses in their millions really do not want freedom at all. No sooner does an individual attain freedom than he seeks out someone to follow and obey. With the growth of freedom, there is a parallel tendency to discover someone whom all can follow. The weak person not only wants to obey, he looks to and for the mass idol. Moreover, this need to follow and to obey is quite basic, and the genesis both of war and religion. It explains the need for a feeling of universal brotherhood, the craving to be part of a worldwide anti-heat such as achieved by Tamerlane and Genghis Khan. Unquote. The interesting thing is that although this was brought up to date after the war, it was written, I believe, about 1912, before Stalin, before Hitler, and before Mussolini and the whole worldwide drift into totalitarianism. Then very quickly, another item of interest. This is from a book by Edwin J. Perkins, The Economy of Colonial America, published by the Columbia University Press in 1980. And this paragraph is very revealing and something we seldom recognize. I quote, In sum, the overall performance of the colonial economy in terms of extensive growth and the standard of living achieved for the white population was unmatched in the 18th century. England and Holland were also experiencing per capita growth, but neither was absorbing the same rate of population growth as the 13 colonies. The highest average incomes in the world for the free population, combined with the growth rates on a par with its only two rivals, and all in the face of a population boom at close to the reproductive maximum for the species. These were the unique colonial characteristics." Unquote. We too seldom appreciate how advanced the colonies were, and how remarkable uh, their economies. Well, 
that's an area that needs a great deal of attention and uh, more studies. Now, this very briefly, Dorothy Whitelock, The Beginnings of English Society, published by Pelican Books, first in 1952 and most recently in 1981 by Penguin Books. One of the interesting uh, points, and I'll quote these few sentences, most of the English clergy who had been reared in the Irish usages remained and conformed on points of observance. They handed on much of the spirit of the Irish church, its love of simplicity, poverty, and humility, its often exaggerated asceticism, its stress on pilgrimage, and voluntary exile for the love of God, its burning missionary zeal. Though the period in which most, uh, more than half the English church looked to Iona for guidance lasted only 30 years, it left permanent results on the ritual, the scholarship, and the penitential system of the English church. Nor was there any complete cleavage with Iona after the synod of Whitby. End of quote. Few people are aware of the importance in the history of Christendom of the Irish Church. Ireland de uh, developed an independent church which had fraternal relations with Rome but was totally independent. That church was the source of a great deal of the missionary activity that brought Northern Europe into the faith. It represented the scholarship and the missionary zeal and the civilization of its day. One of the problems that the Irish Church faced was, of course, that it was in Ireland. <laughs> it was a product of Ireland, and yet, politically, the Irish could never work together as a unity. Ireland was a number of petty kingdoms, each of which was constantly in war with almost every other. And it's almost impossible to deal with the history of Ireland in that period because you need a scorecard. Everybody changed sides uh, so many times, and this and that petty king would uh, have loyalty with uh, another king and then turn against him and choose uh, yesterday's enemy to be his ally. As a matter of fact, the Vikings, who first invaded Ireland and made themselves the allies of one or two, found that they could not keep track of the changes of sides. And the whole thing became so confusing, the Vikings abandoned Ireland for England. The uh, ironic fact is that in the past century and a half, the Irish in America have become superb politicians, something they were incapable of in their early history, and one reason why they were so readily conquered by the English. Another uh, factor of importance is the Irish church. Too seldom do we read much about it. Its center was Armagh, and it was a remarkable center of Christian faith and learning. 
When uh, Rome began to work in Ireland, its center was Dublin. And up till about the time of the Reformation, there were two Catholic churches in Ireland, the Roman and the Irish. The reason why the Irish church folded was because England went against Rome. And anything that England was against, the Irish were for. So that made them very devoutly pro-Roman, and the Irish church was quickly absorbed. Well, now very briefly on to another book, a very interesting work published by Michael Glazier in Wilmington, Delaware, written by Jared Wicks, a Jesuit scholar, Luther and His Spiritual Legacy. Very interesting book. I'm not going to go into it except to quote one statement which uh, the author cites from Luther. The sentence is, one becomes a theologian by experiencing death and damnation, not by understanding, reading, and speculating, unquote. Well, I think there's a great deal of truth to that. And one of the problems with the modern church is that theology has gone from the pulpit into the seminary. And there it has become abstract and ready to go into every kind of evil, symbolic theology, speculative theology, you name it, all anti-biblical. Whereas the kind of theology Luther was talking about, and the author also, is a theology born out of man's experience with God in the midst of crises, griefs, and problems. I'm going to mention another book and urge you to read it because I think you'll find it very, very interesting. The author was John Amundsen, A-H-M-A-N-S-O-N, the great-grandfather of our Howard Amundsen of Chalcedon. And the title is Secret History, published by Moody Press in 1984. This first printing has already gone out of print, but there's a second printing in the works which probably is already off the press. The Secret History was a book written and kept in secret and then much later published in Danish because John Amundsen was a Dane. He was one of the men converted in Denmark and brought over by the Mormon Church, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And when they reached the end of the railroad lines, 1,300 miles east of Salt Lake City, they were given hand carts or wheelbarrows or wagons that they were to push or to pull. And each of these wagons was allotted to five persons with 17 pounds of baggage for, allowed for each of them. 
and they were to pull these or push them. Thirteen hundred miles to Salt Lake City, a horrifying experience with hunger, snow, and much more. Then he describes his experiences on reaching Salt Lake City and finding it to be anything but what he had been told or imagined. And then he secretly began to compile his secret history, which when he was able to leave was published. You'll find a great deal here that is now not spoken of, very clearly set forth. I strongly commend this book. It's an important bit of history. Well, another book of uh, considerable interest to me, a large paperback by Emanuel Velikovsky, published after his death, the title is Stargazers and Grave Diggers, published this year by Quill in New York. This is simply a collection of data about the persecution he endured from the scientific community when his book came out. How Various scientists worked, first of all, to suppress the book, threatened Macmillan and forced Macmillan to drop the printing of it, then went after any and every scientist who had anything favorable to say about the book to, uh, well get them fired from their positions so that no one would dare to support him. And not only was Macmillan compelled to surrender, but they then demanded that Macmillan recant. Of course, this kind of thing is not unusual. As uh, Velikovsky now dead, has written here in this book. In the Scientific American, the hostility to Wilbur and Orville Wright still continues. In the column 50 years ago, reference had to be made on the anniversary of the Wright brothers' flight. Possible loyalty will keep the future editor from divulging the errors of his predecessors. Just as Flanagan omitted including in 50 years ago the references Scientific American made to the flights by Wilbur and Orville Wright. Fifty years earlier, almost to the day, on January 16, 1906, Scientific American printed an editorial comment on the alleged flights by a mysterious aeroplane that covered a reputed distance of 38 kilometers. The brothers Wright were presented as two shadowy persons with fantastic claims, unfounded because unheard of. Quote, if such sensational and tremendously important experiments 
are being conducted in a not very remote part of the country on a subject in which almost everyone uh, feels the most profound interest. Is it possible to believe that the enterprising American reporter, who it is well known, comes down the chimney when the door is locked in his face, even if he has to scale a 15-story skyscraper to do so, would not have ascertained all about them and published the broadcast long ago, unquote. The Wright brothers appeared even as two crooks in Scientific American, quote, Why particularly, as is further alleged, should the Wrights desire to sell their invention to the French government for a million francs, unquote. The Wright brothers made their first successful flight in December 1903, and in 1904 and 1905 performed many more flights. The above was printed in 1906. Fifty years later, almost to the day, the issue with Brown's article went to the press. Over the years, I have seen articles claiming that... Uh, Langley, an establishment scientist connected, I believe, with Smithsonian at the time, was the real inventor of the airplane. Well, Langley's plane could not fly. Years later, to prove that it could, it was taken out. It was in the Smithsonian Museum, altered and made to fly, which is scientific fakery. And to this day, the Wright brothers are not given their credit in books because, after all, they were not scientists. So much for the objectivity of science. Another excellent book is by William Brennan, The Abortion Holocaust, Today's Final Solution printed in St. Louis by the Landmark Press in 1983. Landmark Press, Box 13547, St. Louis 63138. The book is 695. A very important book on the parallels in thinking and approach to the whole subject of abortion by the Nazis who practiced it, and by us today. In the process, truth has been set aside, and the media has cooperated emphatically and wholeheartedly with this. So that today we have a return, he believes, to sorcery. Because, as Brennan points out, before the Hippocratic Oath, which eliminated the idea of exterminative medicine, medical practice was in the hands of sorcerers to whom you could go to get some kind of medical help and also help in the practice of murder, help in eliminating people, help in poisoning them. Now we have taken a step back into sorcery. 
because medical practitioners are now also murderers. Brennan makes a very, very strong case against the contemporary medical practice. Now on to another book, just to read one passage from it. This is a book published in 1976 by the Salmon Brook Historical Society in Granby, Connecticut, the title Trumpets of Glory, Fourth of July Orations, 1786-1861. Within my lifetime, uh, the Fourth of July was a big day because of both the parade and speeches. The subject of the speeches was always the foundation of this country, the premises upon which it was built. Let me give you a sample of what was once Fourth of July oratory. I've chosen this sample because it doesn't come from some of the clergy and uh, politicians who were Orthodox Christians. It comes from Thomas Starr King, who was a very prominent Unitarian West Coast leader in uh, the Bay Area who nonetheless reflects the prevailing opinions of the day. Now, this is what Thomas Starr King wrote, and uh, trying to find a date for this somewhere, 1861, in San Francisco, the year before he had left Boston for San Francisco. He said, all the seasons of human history are related to the divine thought and proceed according to the divine laws of justice and order. Much as every minute which is marked off by the hands of the clock is measured by the internal mechanism, but in the course of human affairs as upon the face of a clock, there are some moments more important than others because they mark another hour. The American Revolution was one of these transitional and epical seasons. Another sixtieth minute was due upon God's register. Slowly and unobserved, the moral pendulum had swung, and the ideal wheels had played, carried on by the dead weights of the mother country's hostile legislation, till at last the striking of the clock was heard and the Battle of Bunker Hill and the Declaration of Independence and the surrender of Burgoyne and the closing military scene at Yorktown and the treaty and Washington's inauguration came with solemn precision, startling the drowsy world like strokes from the hammer in the horologue of time, peeling throughout the universe the change from era to era. While we are grateful for the day, therefore, and the blessings it has ensured, let us be grateful to Providence, which ordained that the labors of our ancestors should be thus connected with its schemes of good for posterity, and that so momentous an hour should be struck upon our shores." Unquote. 
a long ways away, is it not, from things of our day? Well, now on to another book that I'm just going to refer to. Those of you who enjoy history, particularly history that is half uh, detective novel, might enjoy Robert Darnton, D-A-R-N-T-O-N, Basic Books, New York, 1984-1795. The title is The Great Cat Massacre and Other Episodes in French Cultural History. Well, what Darnton has done is to take a number of curious incidents in uh, French history and to go into their meaning. And as he points out, things have different meanings in different times. For example, Mother Goose stories then had a totally different meaning than they now do. And the killing of cats by some workers, apprentices, had a radically different meaning then than it would now. For me, the most interesting part of the book was the section, a couple of chapters, about uh, the philosophes and Rousseau. In the process, he makes this very interesting point about how reading has changed. Readers then had a totally different attitude towards the printed word. He says, for example, that uh, in an earlier day and up until about this time, reading was very intensive. From the Renaissance until about 1750, Europe's, Europe and its readers read intensively. They had access to a limited number of books, and they read them over and over again. They meditated on them inwardly. They read them aloud to their family and in social gatherings and discussed the ideas so that a book was read very intensively, carefully, and thoughtfully. After 1750, people began to read extensively. They ran through a great deal of printed matter, especially novels and journals. They only read things once, not over and over again, and raced on to the next text. Well, they now were less thoughtful readers and more enthusiastic readers. As a result, Rousseau's books set them on fire. People read them with an intense enthusiasm. And as uh, one person wrote to Rousseau, and I quote, Your divine works, monsieur, are an all-consuming fire. 
They have penetrated my soul, fortified my heart, enlightened my mind. For a long time my reason, given over to the deceiving illusions of an impetuous youth, became lost in the search for truth. I sought happiness, and it eluded me. The study of some modern authors had confirmed my meditations, and I was already a thorough scoundrel in my heart without having yet done anything that could make me blush. I needed a God and a mighty God to pull me away from the precipice, and you, monsieur, are the God who performed the miracle." Unquote. Rousseau is a God to the readers. You pulled me away from the precipice. There was a great deal of this in the reaction to Rousseau. Let me add one thing. Uh, Rousseau, by the way, believed that the child should learn to read late rather than early, that there was a lack of a reading readiness and a child was being pushed unnaturally if taught to read too early. Sad to say, this notion has been revived in recent years and has some currency, unfortunately, in Christian circles. Now on to a very, very important book that I hope you will get. It is by Samuel L. Blumenfeld, one of our Chalcedon family, a very brilliant scholar who has never written a dull or an unimportant book. This is his third book in the field of education. The title is NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education. It is the first full-length analysis and expose of the National Education Association. The cost is seven ninety five and I believe it's about a dollar and ninety cents uh, shipping charges. I think you can order it from the publisher, although it's been mainly distributed out of Arizona. The publisher is the Paradigm Company, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M, P.O. Box 45161, Boise, Idaho, 83711. Now, what uh, Blumenfeld does here is to point out very clearly and to document that there is an official religion today in the United States, and it is humanism. It is the religion which is taught in the schools. And he says, uh, it is now the only religion permitted in the uh, public schools, and it is totally supported by government funds. That although the Constitution forbids the government from establishing a national religion, we have one whether the people know it or not. He documents this very carefully. Then he documents very, very extensively the conspiracy against literacy. 
that there is literally uh, an idea, and he says it was John Dewey who first formulated the notion that high literacy is an obstacle to socialism. Moreover, he calls attention to something that others have done before, that Dewey held that the greatest enemy of socialism was the private consciousness that seeks knowledge in order to exercise its own individual judgment and authority. High literacy gave the individual the means to seek knowledge independently. To Dewey it created and sustained the individual system which was detrimental to the social spirit needed to build a socialist society. In Democracy and Education, published in 1916, Dewey devoted a great deal of the book to show how individualism had to adapt itself to the needs of collectivism. Well, he documents at uh, great length the anti-literacy, anti-individualism perspective of the NEA and the educational philosophers. As a result, he says, we have today an education mafia which is trying to reduce us to mass men that can be manipulated. In the course of this, he speaks of the education mafia or educational trust holding secret meetings called the Cleveland Conference since 1915 which charts the course and is a kind of conspiracy against the people of the United States. He also calls attention to the fact that home schools and Christian schools were once the rule in the United States. As a matter of fact, he says, the last bastions of educational freedom in America are the private schools and the private home. As institutions of learning both are as old as America itself. George Washington was educated by his father and half-brother. Benjamin Franklin was taught to read by his father and attended a private school for writing and arithmetic. Thomas Jefferson studied Latin and Greek under a tutor. Of the 117 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution one out of three had had only a few months of formal schooling, and only one in four had gone to college. They were educated by parents, church schools, tutors, academies, apprenticeship, and by themselves. Moreover, he points out that reading has only been a problem since the 1930s. After America created its graduate schools and doctors of education. This is an important book. Exceedingly important. And let me add, written by a dedicated Christian, a Calvinist. One chapter, by the way, is titled, Turning Children into Animals. And Blumenfeld means what he says. When the evolutionary and materialistic perspective began to govern the teachers' colleges, 
the educators were insistent that the child was to be educated the way you trained an animal. Therefore, you had the emphasis on conditioning and on animal behavior as the key to education. As he says, thus the theory of evolution applied to the mind was used by Thorndike and other psychologists as a basis for building a new theory of learning by conditioning. Children were to be considered as animals, for after all, man was nothing more than the king of the animals, as Thorndike put it, and the classroom was to be transformed into a laboratory providing the optimum environment in which learning by reflex conditioning could take place. Now, if you believe that your children are animals, then keep them in the public schools by all means. That's where they belong, except that under God you're liable if you put them there. Well, on to another book by Congressman Guy Vanderjagt. J-A-G-T is how the last name is spelled. Published by... Jameson Books, Ottawa, Illinois, 61350 for 1095. Now, in a sense, this book is a campaign book for the current election. However, I would say that it is just as important after the election next month as it is now because it sums up very ably and popularly the problem with our country. It's full of all kinds of uh, telling data as well as choice illustrations. I like this one on page 70. I quote, My own favorite illustration is that beloved agency, OSHA, which two and a half years ago issued a 198-page uh, regulation on the use of ladders, including this wonderful gem on page 23. When ascending or descending a ladder, the user should always face the ladder. Now, did we really need a governmental agency to tell us when you go up and down a ladder you shouldn't do it backwards? But that was the kind of regulation we were getting. When a plant down in Louisiana decided it wanted to expand, it had its lawyer send to the government agency involved all the necessary forms and applications, including an abstract of title for the land on which it wanted to build, which went back to the year 1803. Now please bear in mind that this was Louisiana and the abstract went back to the year 1803. Well, this is the letter the lawyer got back from the federal agency. We received today your letter and closing application for your client, supported by abstract of title. We have observed, however, that you have not traced the title previously, 1803, and before final approval it will be necessary for the title to be traced previously of that year. Well, that was too much for the poor lawyer. He just went bonkers, and he sent back this letter, which I share with you word for word. I could not improve on it if I tried. Gentlemen, 
Your letter regarding the title received. I note that you wish the title to be title be claimed further back than I have done. I was unaware that any educated man failed to know that Louisiana was purchased from France in 1803. The title of that land had been acquired by France by right of conquest from Spain. The land had come in possession of Spain in 1492 by right of discovery of an Italian sailor named Columbus. Now the good Queen Isabella had taken the precaution of securing the blessing of the Pope of Rome upon Columbus' voyage before she sold her jewels to hell. Now the Pope is the emissary of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and God made the world. Therefore I believe it is safe to assume that God also made that part of the United States called Louisiana. And I hope to heck you are finally satisfied." Unquote. <laughs> the book is uh, full of things like that, and a genuine delight. Easy reading, it can be read in a sitting. And uh, with no small profit. Uh, this one more item. There's so much I could uh, quote from this book. He attacks the idea that uh, life has to be made totally problem-free. Uh, and he says, for one thing, God can use sorrow to teach us to know joy. Somehow life never reaches its height until it suffers. The Arabs say all sunshine makes a desert, and the life that never knows hardship will be like a desert indeed. A good book. Read it. Then another by James R. Whelan and Patricia B. Bozell, also published by Jameson Books, for 1395, again published in 1984. It's an account of what is happening in Central America. It's an excellent book. On one or two points I may differ a bit, but it does give us an excellent account of what is happening. The thesis of the book could be summed up this way, and I quote, This book will attempt first to document the claim that Central America's five republics, to varying but generally comparable degrees, were in 1977 stable, prospering, progressive, and firmly allied to the United States. Next, it will examine the role of the United States in transforming the promise of 1977 into the agony of 1984. There have, to be sure, been other external factors, natural and man-made, and they will form the substance of a brief following section. The book will then deal in some detail with recent events in the two countries, Nicaragua and El Salvador, where U.S. revisionism has been applied most badly, with most catastrophic results so far. Finally, a few re reflections on where it might all end, but doesn't have to, unquote. Now, the point of these authors is that under Carter and Mondale, 
the practitioners of the politics of despair, as they use their term, decided that because Central America was not perfect, the regimes had to be done in. So they systematically worked to overthrow the existing regimes and to allow Marxist regimes to take over some of them. And they're continuing to work towards that end through the Senate. As a result, although human rights in those countries were often far better than in many countries that we have fraternal relations with, and considered to be good, civilized European countries, we have been after these people savagely to attempt to destroy them. The result is we have created untold misery and are on the verge of creating a great deal more if these practitioners of despair have their way. Well, our time is beginning to run out. I uh, don't want to get started on any uh, big subject. I'm trying to see what there is that uh, I can deal with very uh, briefly. I did uh, go into the book on Zanies last time, and... Uh, there's so much in it, I don't know where to begin. It's a delightful book. But maybe I can find something that would be rather brief. There's a good uh, section on uh, Bronco Nagurski, a football player. Now, some of you who are younger don't remember Bronco Nagurski. Uh, uh, let me begin with this citation. He's the only man I ever saw who ran his own interference, said Steve Owen, the coach of the Giants, in according kudos to the most devilish opposing fullback he ever encountered, one hard-charging, unstoppable Bronco Nagurski, whose football spurs and fame were won while uh, playing for George Hallis Powerhouse Bears of the 1930s. Bronco Nagurski uh, seldom lifted his head when hitting the line after taking a handoff and crashing his 230-pound, 6-foot-2-inch frame into waiting adversaries. He once explained his unorthodox posture by saying that he did not want to see the fear in the eyes of opponents and thus melt into sympathy. His blind running often led to injuries, usually inflicted upon others. He smashed through the line in a Packer-Bear game once and ran pell-mell over Packer tacklers for 35 yards to a touchdown, taking the last three defenders with him as he finally crashed into the end zone. The last three defenders were carried from the field on stretchers. In the same year, 1933, Nagurski plowed into the end zone of Wrigley Field and kept going right into the well-known brick wall, which is still in back of home plate in this baseball stadium. He hit the wall with such force that he put a large hole in the structure, one that required repair by a bevy of bricklayers. The legendary fullback was never more than the human dynamo, than in a game between the Bears and the Washington Redskins.
the Redskins put up a stiff, bruising resistance to Nagurski, stopping him for the most part through 50 minutes of play. Going into a huddle, the enraged Nagurski roared to his quarterback, Give me that ball. This time I'm not going to be stopped by any of them skins. They'd better look out for themselves. Taking the handoff on the Redskin 30-yard line, Nagurski churned forward, his head down as usual. He charged through the Redskin line like a rushing locomotive, crushed the secondary, and without looking up, plunged onward directly toward the safety, hitting the last defender with such a force that the entire stadium winced at the crushing sound of the crash. Nagurski kept going, even though his way was clear to the goalpost, as if a host of tacklers awaited him, still not looking up. He slammed into the goalpost, careened off of them, then plowed onward for another thirty yards until he smashed into a steel and concrete wall. Wobbly-legged and with a dazed look in his eyes, Bronco barely made it to the Bears' bench on the sidelines. He sat down, removed his headgear, and rubbed his enormous cranium, moaning, Gosh, but that last guy sure hit me hard. <laughs> that was Bronco Nagurski. And you had to live in those days and hear the stories about him to appreciate what this little segment tells you. <laughs> he was really a remarkable person. A book on his career would be a very, very interesting one. Well, our time is up. It's been good to be with you again. And I'm looking forward to our next time together in two weeks. And until then, God bless you. <laughs>